in Psalm 6, in verse 6, he says, I am weary with my grieving, my groaning, my mourning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with mourning. In Ezekiel 27, it says, they raised their voices and cried bitterly. They tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads and rolled in ashes. In Job chapter 2, it says that they cried aloud with great mourning. And they too tore the remnants of their robe. In James chapter 4, in verse 9, it says to be wretched, to, to mourn, to weep. It says, let your laughter be turned to joy. Welcome to Fondren Church. We're happy you're here. We're in a series called Sermon. And we talked about last week how we view this idea, this endeavor called the sermon. I told you that, I told you rather, in a world that's becoming more Twitterized, that I believe the sermon is going to make a comeback. Justin Timberlake said, let's bring sexy back. And I believe the church today is bringing the sermon back, this beautiful, sacred art form. This ancient endeavor where people gather in a room and they hear the word of God spoken. And we, 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 a lot of times we think that a sermon ought to be endured or to be evaluated. We think the chief question is, do we like it? But we said last week, maybe the chief question, according to Jesus, is did you listen? And did the listening to the sermon, did, did it, does it evoke action in this great Sermon on the Mount, that we're looking at the greatest sermon ever by the greatest teacher ever. And we're just going to roll through this. Last week we opened up Matthew chapter 5 and we read it in its entirety from verse 1 through verse 12. And we honed in on Matthew chapter 5, 3 where Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Today we're just going to isolate this passage today. We're going to look at the second of eight things Jesus says about being blessed, about being happy, about having deep abiding joy. And he says this, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Church, say it with me. I'm going to say it and after you repeat after me as I raise my hand. Okay, would you do this with me? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, this idea of mourning, I started the sermon on a low note, quoting some verses about mourning, but it's, it's in the scripture quite a bit. Now, what is it? What's the big idea? Why would Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn? Now, in this verse that we read, Matthew 5, 1 through 12 last week, we noted that this word, that first word is mentioned nine times. And Jesus gives us eight attitudes. And if you look at the eight attitudes, if you're anything like me, you look at them and you say, I don't measure up. I fall very short. There's a great gap between what Jesus is teaching and my natural proclivity, the inclination, the human inclination in my life. There's a gulf, a great chasm. Blessed, Jesus says. In the midst of the morning today, I want to say this to you, that Jesus wants you to be blessed. We talked last week about what this, we put the Greek word up and we talked about what this means, this deep abiding 
happiness. We said that, that joy, this blessedness, is not a shallow sentiment. It's a, it's a deep virtue. It's not induced by favorable happenings. We said it's produced by God. And we said that joy is not, this blessedness is not getting what you want. It's knowing that you're loved. God wants to bless you. It's in the book from beginning to end. There's a great... Um, doxology, or it's a beautiful thing that a lot of our traditional churches say. It's found in the book of Numbers. Maybe you grew up or attended a church where you said this a lot, or a pastor would close the service and say it over you. I went to a church like that for a brief period. I, I, didn't, I liked a girl, and she went to that church. So I went to that church because I liked that girl. And that pastor would say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May He cause His face to shine on you. You see, being blessed by God, being blessed by anyone is to be loved. And to love somebody is to pay attention to them. Have you noticed that? To pay attention to them. That's the idea. May the Lord bless you. May He keep you. May He cause His face to shine on you. It's a, it's a common scene. A couple will sit at a breakfast table. And one spouse, let's say the husband, is immersed in a newspaper while the wife is pouring out her heart about a deep, important matter. And frustrated, she says, you haven't heard a word I've said. You're not listening. And he says, still looking at the paper, I can tell you every word you said. And he does. Now, is she satisfied? With her shaking her head. Men, men you still don't get it, do you? <laughs> We're doing a marriage retreat next weekend. It's, uh, is she satisfied? No. She doesn't want him to repeat every word back to her. A tape recorder can do that. What she wants is for him to put down the paper, for him to turn toward her, to look at her, and to what? To pay attention. This blessing that God gives His people so long ago to the nation of Israel that we've recorded and we've used in our churches, it's recorded in the book of Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. May He cause His face to turn upon you, to shine upon you. Now, isn't it great, that image that God would turn His face to turn his face. In fact, look at the person next to you. Just pick someone to your left or right. Just look right in their face. Look at their face. Now, what does that do for you? Hurts a little bit, right? A little bit awkward, maybe? <laughs> but imagine not looking at them. Don't look at them. Just look at this face now. But imagine not looking at them. Imagine rarely, if ever, looking at them. I... We were talking to a young couple that's just started to date this past week. And when we were talking to them, we were recounting when we first met and when Susan and I, that is, when we began to really start liking each other. And there was a night when I was nervous. And I was like, is she into me? And we were walking on the campus of Colorado State University on a beautiful uh, Rocky Mountain night. And as we were strolling across the campus, I was nervous and thinking, I'm going to ask her out, da 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 and I remember walking with Susan, and she was looking at me. I mean, she was just staring at me, right? And she was walking like this, you know, just like this, <laughs> looking right at me. And I'm like, okay, you're going to run over a microphone. You're going to step on a crack, break your mother's back. But it helped me to see that she was attuned. Her face was turned toward me. And isn't it beautiful in this blessing that God gives Israel and, and to us? It's not just God turning His face toward us. It's His face shining. You see, it gets even better. The shining, it's like the, it, it's an image of delight. It's like a parent looking 
at the face or look, looking at their faces. They look at their child perform on a ball field or at a piano recital. Susan and I, uh, on Friday, we went to First Press Day School to the grandparents' banquet. No, no grandparents could make it, so we represented the old people. We were there with our, uh, for our fourth grader. And I remember at one point when the children were performing something beautiful in this grand worship center, I turned because we were sitting close to the front and I turned and I studied the sea of faces, old faces with lots of wrinkles. But there were, they were beaming as they looked at their grandchildren, beaming with pride. Their faces were shining. It's a bride walking down the aisle and the radiance thereof as she looks to her groom. God's face. He wants to bless you by turning His face and allowing His face to shine on you. God really does want to bless you. I want to lead a church where we elevate our idea of God blessing us. Because I want God to bless this church and I want us to be a blessing to this community and to the nations. And I want God to bless you. Jesus, nine times, says, blessed. Blessed, blessed, blessed. And today he says a really strange thing. Last week when we looked at blessed are the poor in spirit, we said that perhaps the first fledgling step to happiness is humility. And today we look at blessed are those who mourn. You said it out loud. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. This could be the oddest of the Beatitudes. Maybe the strangest thing said in this passage of Matthew 5. Could it be? That your greatest gladness could flow from your deepest sadness. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, I teach joy. I preach joy. I I love passages like Nehemiah. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Isaiah, the the prophet of old, talks about how a barren wilderness turns into a, a beautiful wilderness. A beautiful thing of growth and vegetation. And there's joy. Jesus said in John 15, I'm teaching you all these things so that you might have joy and that your joy may be full. Paul said in from a jail cell to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. This idea of finding our deep gladness in God is very important. Why then this stuff about mourning? What could Jesus be talking about? Blessed are those who mourn. Now, as I studied it this week, I know that there's a a difference. Some people think that Jesus is referring to blessed are those who mourn over the sin of our land, over where the world is today. Uh, Some turn inward and say it's it's just that. It's an introspection. It's looking to say, what is it in me? Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. What is my wickedness and how should I mourn? But how then do we walk? With joy. That's why Jesus taught. But then how do we mourn? How do we live out this passage? Anybody feel the tension I'm talking about? Blessed are those who mourn. Well, no doubt Jesus is talking about a mourning of our sin. This this sin condition that we have. That's everybody. Romans teaches us that all have sinned. It affects every one of us. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short... Of God's glory. 
It affects every one of us. It affects every part of us. Read Romans 1. It talks about what the sin condition does, what, how it leads to futility and to ignorance and to darkness in our thinking. It affects us in every way. George Barna did a survey about sin. He asked the respondents to name their top sins, the things they struggle with the most. And in a world of deep sins like racism and violence and, and bloodshed, and sexual slavery, and pornography, and all the rampant evil, the respondents on these polls said that the sins they struggle the most with are busyness, laziness, procrastination, spend too much time on social media. Not happy about my diet. Those were the top five. Do we see sin the way God sees sin? Jesus says in this passage, blessed are those who mourn. Well, what is the condition? Look at this passage. I think Laura's going to put it up for us now. This is in Matthew 9. Now, you know, even though we didn't open the book today, the Beatitudes are in Matthew 5. But in Matthew 9, Jesus teaches us uh, he had been healing people. He had been hanging out with some unsavory characters. And it says this. He says this. This is sort of like a two-sentence parable with three characters. Pick out the characters with me. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Ever heard that before? Did you know that was in the book? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now let me ask you, who are the three characters in this? We see a doctor. We see sick. And we see the healthy. Now over the next few minutes, I'm going to ask you six questions. First of all, who's the doctor? Who's the doctor? Is it Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, Dr. Drew, Dr. Seuss, Dr. Sanya Gupta, Dr. Quinn, Dr. Jekyll? It's Dr. Jesus. Jesus is the doctor and he said this doctor comes for the sick. Second question Who are the sick? Who are the sick? The people around the table in Matthew chapter 9. It's Matthew himself, the tax collector. The one who was outcast. The one who had been shunned by his countrymen. It's the women who had to turn, uh, so they thought, to prostitution. It's the people of ill repute. The people that were with Jesus around the table, the people who were in touch with their pain. The people who probably were making and had made a series of really bad choices. Uh, The people who they were turning, where they were turning and who they were turning to was not filling them. It wasn't working for them and they were becoming very aware of that. They were broken people. They probably were surprised that Jesus would hang out with them. Why would godly, credible people hang out with the sick? Third question, who are the healthy? The religious people. The proud. The people who thought that their sufficiency could provide for their future needs. They were probably distant people. I bet you these religious people, I bet you they said the right thing. I bet you they said we need God's forgiveness. But I bet when you were around the healthy people, 
I bet you didn't feel comfortable sharing some of your sickness with them. I bet you could easily feel judged when you're around them. Because they're, they seem to be at another level. Who's the doctor? Who's the sick? Who's the healthy? Now, another question. Which category are you in? Now, for me, I really want to be in the Jesus came for me crowd. But then I start living, going to church, being asked to speak, going to small group, doing things. And then I find that I want to be considered among the healthy. I want to be that person that's really shiny and happy and has it all together. Which category, which category are you in? Now, another question. What did the sick suffer from? What did they really suffer from? They suffered from sin. The scripture teaches us, I referred to it a moment ago in Romans, that we all sin. Every one of us. If If you sin today and you're still awake, just nod your head like this. If you sin. And we have sinful acts. When we think of sin, how should we think of sin? In fact, how should we think about the people? This is where the church struggles today. How should we think about the people who are at the table with Jesus? We commit sinful acts. Anybody committed a sinful act this weekend? Maybe even this morning? Yep. What was it? I saw your hand. No, I'm kidding. What about you? I saw your... But we commit sinful acts. And if you notice that... I just finished a book called The Power of Habit. It's not necessarily a Christian book, but what a, what a powerful book. This book, The Power of Habit. Very insightful. But have you noticed that there's something in us? It's the law of diminishing returns uh, combined with just this idea that something happens in our brain. The more we do something, the more we want to do it, and the more we want to go deeper into that... The scripture talks about guilty habits or secrets and also godly habits or secrets. And Jesus says to us, you don't just stop doing this, but you need to replace those things that are corrosive, that are disruptive, that are damaging in your life with holy habits, with good things. But we have sinful acts. Years ago, I remember being, a long time ago, I remember camping out west. I was a single guy with other single guys, rowdy guys. And we were out in the western part of the United States. We had been backpacking, hiking, camping. And we bedded down one night. And as we had bedded down, we all had fallen asleep. And we began to slowly, to a man, began to get woken up by a, a noise out. So it wasn't a loud noise, kind of a muffled noise. But it caught our attention. And we put on our sandals, flip-flops, whatever. We, we put on our headlamps. We unzipped the tent, and it just took us a couple of seconds, and we discovered a bear with a very big head was in our van eating cheesecake. <laughs> now, I remember looking at that bear thinking, I'm higher on the food chain, but you're eating our cake. 
Now, if I was a bear foraging through the forest for berries and stuff, I would, if I happened upon a cheesecake, I would probably do what that bear was doing, right? Bears have evolved, you know. I think pretty soon they're going to be, you know, uh, hot wiring the car and driving off or whatever. But here's this bear, amazingly, had gotten into the van, had unlocked the hitch on the cooler and was eating cake. And when he saw us with our headlamps, he really, he took off. He headed back out into the woods. Now think about the bear for a second. If he could delay his gratification, if he was a little smarter, if he could control his needs and desires and wants, he could have just quietly grabbed a couple of those cheesecakes and just taken them into the woods and sat down and enjoyed them all by himself, right? He wouldn't have been disrupted. He wouldn't have been chased off. So it can be with our sins. We just want what we want. We can't seem to control ourselves. That's the message we get from the media and from Hollywood. Whatever your wants are, whatever your needs, whatever your desires, just go for that. There is a, a, a condition in us uh, also that really relates to this. Now, there's, there's the acts that we perform, but there's a condition. There's means there's something different there. There's something that flows out of the acts that we do. To illustrate that, let's go from a bear to this word right here. This is a, a crazy word. It took Laura all morning to type it. I have no idea how you pronounce that. But if you Google it, you will learn that that was a massive volcano back in 2010. And this volcano in 2010 erupted over around the Iceland area. Some of you might recall this. If you, again, if you Google, you'll learn this. But it spewed gas, ash, and lava up into the air 25,000 feet. By the way, if you're a public speaker and you're going to say gas and ash together, practice that like 20 times. Gas, ash, and lava. It spewed 25,000 feet up into the air. And it grounded flights in the United Kingdom, in Iceland, in Scandinavia. Europe itself came to a, a traveling gridlock. It affected Europe and its commerce for two weeks back in 2010. Now what we see, we see the disruption. We see the gas, the ash, and the lava. But what we don't see is the magma and the molten rock and the impulsive eruptive forces underneath. What is manifested outwardly that disrupts, that damages, that darkens, that pollutes, flows from within. It's a sin condition. You see, as a Christ follower and as the church, we can't just say we struggle with busyness. Oh, I just take on so much. Oh, and I procrastinate and I look at social media too much and my diet and exercise may not be good. Those are the sins I struggle with. We are called to see sin for what it is, that it outwardly manifests itself. And in this twisted world in which we live, which people are getting hurt on a massive scale, we, have to, we are called to find, ironically, a deep joy, a blessedness in mourning over what breaks the heart of God in our world and in our wicked hearts. What people cannot see about us. Blessed are those who mourn. 
Well, what is this idea? If our happy God desires for your life to be happy, Jesus said it nine times. But he teaches, you see, Jesus is a mind bender. He's a script flipper. It doesn't appear to be what it is, this happiness thing. Because some of you know, some of you last week nodded your head. When we go for happiness and happiness is our goal, do we ever really get it? And now psychologists are catching on to the greatest psychology of all time from Matthew 5. That it's real, this happiness thing is really elusive. And if that's what you go for, mm mm-mm. It's got to be based on something different, something else. Well, let's talk as we close on this idea of mourning. What is mourning exactly? In the Greek, it's clear from Matthew 5 that the same word used here that Jesus talked about, blessed are those who mourn, it's the same type of mourning that I quoted earlier from Job and in Ezekiel and possibly with the psalmist in Psalm 6-6 about drenching his couch in tears and his bed, flooding his bed every night. With weeping. It's, it's when you lose somebody. It's that type of really sackcloth and ashes type of tear the road mourning. Mourning is, mourning is admitting. Imagine with me for a second. If you were at a game or a play or a theater or a movie or a church service. And there was a large crowd. Picture something if you will in your mind. Close your eyes if you have to. But picture a large crowd and picture a speaker who comes out and he says to the crowd, stand if you've been affected by cancer. Now, you know what I know. In a large crowd, a lot of people stand up. Many right here would at Fondren Church this morning. Stand if you've been affected by cancer. Now, what do you feel if you're in the room in that moment? Solidarity, empathy, compassion, connection, love. Imagine if that same speaker to that same crowd were to say, stand up if you've been to Hawaii. Stand up if you drive a station wagon. Stand up if you've had to fire your interior decorator. Now, your response would be very different. You see, mourning and suffering does what? It unites us. It unites us. Someone with the same disease that's affected you. A daughter. Someone else who has a daughter who has an eating disorder. Or a brother who's in jail. Or a marriage that didn't make it. Or a spouse who died. That connection that bond becomes very visceral, very real. And it transcends whatever differences you might have. Do you get what I'm saying? And that's the beauty of mourning. The scripture says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there's a time to laugh and there's a time to weep. Romans 12 tells us as a body of believers to get closer together, to share life and rejoice when someone rejoices and weep when someone weeps. It's a little different than a Seattle Seahawks cornerback running up to somebody and saying, you mad, bro, or taunting them after a loss. It's hard, isn't it, to lose with dignity. It's hard to mourn if you're being taunted. And the scripture says, 
for the Jesus lifestyle, the Jesus way. The Jesus way to a blessed life is much different from that, that we are to connect with each other. Mourning is in the admitting. Mourning is in the confessing. Years ago, I remember in South Florida, we connected, I connected with a group of friends. It was a very odd group, I'll, I'll be honest with you. We met through a church and we kind of formed a group. It was started as a book club and then it just took a life of its own. It just became a group of weird people. And there was a philosophy student, a grad student in philosophy, one in mathematics. There was an anthropology professor, a couple other people, and me. And we would have drinks, dinner, conversation, talk about big things. People would speak on their area of study, their interest in life. And we were sharpening each other. And one of the members of this group, if you will, was a woman named Trish. And Trish brought vibrancy and life to our group. But one day we learned that Trish's daughter, Ashley, had a near fatal car wreck. And we did what you would do. We sent her our condolences in various forms. We, we did our best to wrap our arms of love around her. And due to the circumstances, Trish missed our group many times. And I remember when she came back, this vibrant mother who loved her daughter. Moms, like you would love yours. Like you do love yours. And she began to give an update on the broken ribs and the neck injury and the head injury. And as she was talking, she paused so as to avoid just losing it. And she said that her daughter Ashley was at about 50% brain capacity. And what she was trying to tell us, it was a breakthrough. She, She said that a doctor had, for the first time, used the word retarded. And when she said that word, it just kind of hung in the air. There was no leader. Thank God I wasn't leading the group. But that word just hung out in the air, and we just there was this heaviness, this weight. And we heard the voice. It was Tom, the weirdest guy in the group next to me. And Tom said, I have a retarded brain. See, Tom was a mathematician. He was one of those guys who could draw a line between God and high-level calculus. Not many are able to do that. But he was a brilliant thinker, but he pulled up his hair and showed us where he was hit by a golf club when he was little. He talked about how that has damaged him and the doctor's appointments and the surgeries and the medical bills and all the stuff we didn't know. And Tom said, I have a retarded brain. In the moment when he said that, that heaviness just evaporated. You see, that word that took a a grip on us, it just got crushed under the weight of a shared experience. And that's what mourning can do. When we admit and we confess and we really talk openly about everything, that's needful among trusted people. You see, have you noticed how envy, comparison, pride, selfishness, have you noticed how that separates? It really separates us. 
But mourning brings us together. David was looking out the window at his empire, and most of you know this story, and saw Ulala, a beautiful girl named Bathsheba. And he noticed her feminine features and her beautiful shape, and he said, I want that. And David was able to get most of what he wanted. And David, though that was another man's wife, he laid down with her, he slept with her. And that, by the way, was one of his 37 mighty men's wife. That's a problem. He had that man killed. He committed the crime, the sexual uh, sin. And then there's the cover-up and there's the murder. And then that good friend, that prophet friend, Nathan, comes to him. And we see the results, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And I think one of the dangers, I would ask you later to read Psalm 51. If any part of this message has been cloudy or you just want to go deeper... Read later Psalm 51 because you see, I think one of the dangers of reading the Bible is we read it, but we fail to feel it. And in Psalm 51, it has, I think, the most grief and sorrow and mourning of any chapter in the Bible. And David is saying, my sin is ever before me. Some of your versions say, my sin haunts me. It scares me. And you're here today, some of you, or you've been there, and you're haunted by sin. You're afraid of your future. You're ashamed of your past. It's a tough spot because of something or some things that you've done, and you're saying, my sin haunts me. It's ever before me. And David went on to say, I acknowledged my sin. He did an autopsy. And then he offered this apology. And in offering the apology, he said in Psalm 51, 7, God, you desire truth in the innermost parts. There's a path to blessedness. The truth. Because if you're going to know and own the truth, you will at times have to mourn. And you will and I will have to mourn over my sin. And David says, you desire truth in the innermost parts. Well, what's the truth? It's who you are. It's who you really are. Now, do you think you know me? How many of you think you know me? You're scared to answer. But a lot of you don't really know me. You don't know me like my friends know me. Some of your friends, and you know me. You know my history and my habits. But my friends don't know me like my family knows me. And my family doesn't know me like my wife knows me. She knows me. But she doesn't know me like I know me. Because I'm with me all the time. But I don't know me like God knows me. And David says, man, I want to live in that truth that you know it all. And he says in Psalm 51, I believe it's verse 17 and 18. That's the crowning part of it. He goes Before that he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. It's a tough place. And we create churches where we have smart, savvy, shining, laughing people. But they're afraid. They're dying on the inside and they're afraid to talk to anybody about it. And David says that's a joyless place to be. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. A broken, I think this is verse 17, a broken and contrite spirit. A spirit that mourns, God, you will not despise. Could it be? That your deepest gladness could flow from your deepest sadness. Would you pray?
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God, your heart is that of a father for us. Your goal is not to inflict pain or allow pain for arbitrary reasons, for no reasons. In a haphazard manner, you you want to get deeper inside of us for us to, Lord, desire truth in the innermost parts. And Lord, I would pray for us. I would pray against the joylessness that's in the room. But Lord, for the, the path to joy is at times going to be the path through mourning. For us to deal with something that we've got to deal with. I pray, Lord, as we observe the Lord's Supper in these moments, as we take communion, bread and wine or juice, I pray that we would overflow with gratitude. And that just as we could picture a crowded room and someone who's been affected by a disease or a sin or a problem, and we could relate and we would greet it with solidarity and empathy and connection and compassion and love. Lord, the message of Christianity is a cross, a living, breathing, suffering, thirsty God-man. And the message is that you are not a God who is distant. But you feel what we feel. You ache at our aching. And you know the deep longing. Lord, this morning as we worship, we remember the cross. The man of sorrow who took our sin, our shame upon himself. Lord, receive our worship as we do what your word says for us to do, as a family of God, to do this in remembrance. In you we pray. Amen.